0: Welcome to the Profitable Farmer podcast, where we share stories and tips to help you run a better farming business and create your very own freedom farm. If you're looking to work smarter and not harder in your farm business, welcome, you're in the right place. G'day guys, and welcome once again to Profitable Farmer. Um, Um, Again, I just get so excited at the start of each of these podcasts, especially when I get to interview incredible people like I get to in this one. Two episodes ago, I shared my backstory and my take on resilience and then interviewed our um, wellbeing and head coach in Tracy Seacombe to get her spin on resilience and how families can turn up better to each other to support each other. In, farming, in farm businesses to be more resilient. Now, about six weeks ago, our alumni at FOA was so lucky to have Maria Roberto speak at one of our conferences and one of our dinners. And Maria was speaking between Entree and Main course in a beautiful restaurant to 110 farmers, which was a tough gig, but got Maria absolutely held the audience incredibly um, and provided us not just with a compelling keynote but just such an insightful spin and view, research-backed on the neuroscience and the deep psychology that underpins resilience. And so I know know our alumni members were just blown away with what we spoke of, Maria, and um, the feedback we've had since has been incredible. And it gives me just huge pleasure to, to be able to share your 30 years of clinical psychology experience, but just more than that, your, your deep passion for this topic and wanting to help individuals and high-performing teams to understand how they can engage each other better, perform better, and explore how to be more resilient um, in how they go about what they do. Welcome to Profitable Farmer and thank you so much for your time.
1: My pleasure, Jeremy, and thank you so much for the invitation to come and speak with you. I'm I'm as excited as I am nervous, so I'm uh, really keen to uh, try and answer as many questions as I can, but really excited about the possibility of opening up this discussion around resilience and what it is and how people are currently talking about it.
0: Now, Maria, you've got a deep and extended background and connection to agriculture. Would you mind just sharing that connection? Yeah,
1: you know, Jeremy, um, you know, I've waited 30 years to try and understand where this work is really needing to take me. Um and the first sort of ten years of my life, you know, well, next year it will be my zero year, which is my thirtieth year as in my trade as a, as a psychologist. And I keep saying to everyone, I'm going to be wearing a party hat on every Zoom meeting next year. You know, I'm 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 going to take advantage of it. But um, I got to Farm Owners Academy, and um, not knowing what to expect, and it was really interesting that as I sat there listening, I I had this overwhelming experience that oh my god i know these people and the reason why i know these people is because that's my ancestry so both my my parents have come from agriculture in italy and so they were um, first they were migrants and i was first generation um and i couldn't speak a word of english when i started school you know i was just italian that was that was just how it was but i grew up Um, in a home in urban area um, with a huge backyard and there was we we only ate what we grew and if we had to buy anything additional it would be from the market and I remember my mum coming I don't know whether you remember the old shopping bags that were nets they were nets and she would have two two big shopping bags on either side the nets yeah with live live chickens with their heads sticking out. And that's how we'd get on the tram. And and these chickens would just, you know, and they, she wouldn't batter an eyelid. And then in the other bag, and and see the thing is, Jeremy, when I tell this, if I was to tell this this story to anyone else, they wouldn't believe me. But in the other bag, she had eels, but they were live eels. Because of course, you why would you buy the already killed eels? Because she you know and so we would go home. And she had an area in the back, and my dad had this drum and this sort of fire pit, which now is you know you pay thousands of dollars for, and back then you know you just built your own, where they would um, kill the chickens and then they would um, scold them and you know pluck all the, and the eels she'd had the she had this um, sort of a, a concrete sort of. Um, well outside well not a well a concrete basin huge basin and she would fill it with water and stick the eels in and then put sort of a like a an old metal thing over the top so they would just to keep them alive until she was ready yeah that's that's how it was because you couldn't kill it and then leave it you'd had to kill it skin it and then cook it quickly so you know i i remember vegetation in the garden i remember these live animals and there were no pets if there was a rabbit you, you'd have it for dinner, so you couldn't even name it. You know, it wasn't even. So that that's where I've come from, and of course, all of the stories growing up was about, you know, my my parents uh, living living off farmland, and and I came to the farmers owners academy, and I just went, oh my gosh, I've got this feeling of belonging, and it was incredibly special.
0: It's perfect. I think often we can forget about the deep backstories that so many of us have. Australian agriculture is actually really quite young, but to hear that memory that you have about farming um, with your family in Italy um, only relatively recently, it's quite amazing to hear.
1: Oh, it's incredible. And and the stories that came from that, you know, the stories about resilience around determination, around belief, um, around hope, um, all of those stories that have, had come from the land, because they were so connected with it, and that they and that that's that's where their livelihood was. The lessons that were learned from that, we are still learning that today, and uh, many of us for our for the wider community still have that to learn. So there's something to be said about um, about when we are so connected to land. Um and our you know and our indigenous communities are the same but when we are so connected to land we we have a very different relationship with it and the relationship is one of sturdiness and it is and it is one of um uh respect and um it, it's about how we respect ourselves and how we respect the work that we do and the land that we're on yeah mm-hmm.
0: Maria, what's your connection with resilience and and then perhaps as a trained and highly experienced psychologist and being so well-researched in neuroscience, what's the definition of it? So your, your deep connection with it first and then maybe the, the more formal definition of it.
1: Look, it's been really interesting, Jeremy, because in my early years, a lot of my work as a psychologist, as people would know, psychiatry is the same, is that our task is to assess for def- for deficit, our task is to be able to look at lifestyles or people's patterns of life and look at it and go, well, what's wrong? What you know, what's not going right? How do we assess it? How do we diagnose it? And now, how do we fix it? Uh, and that has been very much the paradigm with which psychology has been working for um, many, many years, probably until about sort of. Fifteen years ago or so, when there started to be a change, and we and and I certainly saw this in my work. If we are to grow, and if we are to develop better coping mechanisms, and if we are to expand our capacities as humans, that's not going to happen in the deficit. You're not going to get higher order thinking under depression. You're not going to get higher order thinking under anxiety. You're not going to get creative thinking under those really heavy mood states because those neurological states don't lend themselves to higher order thinking you know problem solving um uh in-depth insight um you know being able to reflect is actually a really heightened you re, you require a heightened neurological state to do that um and so when we think about, when I think about resilience and what it's meant for me is that it really has changed the entire way that I practice psychology. And, you know, I was listening to your podcast um, and you said a couple of, well, you said a lot of, you said a lot of things that that I wished that I was Sitting beside you, I felt like your wing woman. You know, I've watched Maverick, I've gone, you know, I've been to the cinemas uh-huh. and I, you know, and as you were talking, I felt like I felt like a wing woman and I felt like turning and going, yeah, that's right. And, and yes, and, 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 you know, when you spoke about we need to be really careful about our belief systems in ourselves and we need to be careful about how we describe ourselves. Because if I say to myself, I have anxiety or I am depressed, it really does impact the way that we open ourselves up to intervention and what we do know is that our minds are incredibly powerful and our minds are only as powerful as our as the health of our brain allows it to be and so suddenly we've got this really complex sort of state of saying well we need to be healthy and we need to have a healthy Body and a healthy, so that it looks after our brain, and we need to have a healthy brain, so that our thinking um, can also reflect that level of um, health and fitness. And so, resilience for me, or well-being for me, is very much about adopting a strengths-based approach. And a strengths-based approach is not denying that people experience anxiety or they experience states of depression because i i first of all it's foolish and second of all it's unhelpful but i but i do think that and as you were saying in your in the previous podcast we all experience states of depression we all experience states of anxiety because it is normal to do that to live a normal human life you need to live the entire spectrum of mood states and emotion it becomes problematic when we get stuck in a particular state that that then does not serve us or that is no longer responsive to our environment and we call that being adaptive mm. and and so one of the things that we know about resilience is that when we do cultivate it when we do grow it when we do build it not only are we do we find ourselves making different choices and adopting diverse mind states but the way that our brain operates is vastly different the way that our brain uses blood flow is vastly different the way that our brain connects to every other part of the brain is vastly different so you know under states of distress you know you get very focused very narrow activation in the brain in only certain states that allow us to move into states of defense and under those states, you, you know, we cannot optimise, but we can protect. And so it's important to be able to do that in times. However, that is not where our growth or our recovery sits. Our growth and recovery really sits in the area of understanding what well being is and what is it? What does it look like? Um, you know, what, what is it that we need to employ in order to be able to do those, to, to be able to do those things, get, you know, move into those states? And it was really interesting because, you know, an, another thing that that you talked about, which so I've got to tell you, when I was listening to your podcast, I had e- my earpods on and I was walking the dog down our local creek. I live in um, Strathmore for those of Victorians and we've got Minipons Creek down um, behind us. Just next to the school. Um, and it's just the most beautiful path to take next to the creek. And there's lots of, it's, you know, it's it's full of shrubs and full of trees, and it's been kept, you know, as much as possible to its original state. And as I was walking, I was listening to you talk about how your mindset as a young child was one of deficit, and that your your negative comparison to those. Men around you who were bigger and better and broader and more capable, and you compared yourself, and you've just gone, well, I'm, I'm not that, and I'm clumsy, and I trip over myself, and you know, and all the rest of it. And I remember, and and as as and as I'm listening to you, I'm feeling really sad because a lot of that that was a lot of my upbringing too, where I was the last, but. My parents didn't speak a word of English, and so I didn't feel like I I really fit anywhere, but I remember being the last and being the less interesting, the less um, um, valued, simply because I was such a child and my sister was 10 years older than me. Um, But it's really interesting how quickly we assess our environment and form a belief without really checking it out with anybody. And we can hold those belief systems for a very, very long time and they really lead and dominate us. And so resilience is very much about stopping and checking in, stopping and um, checking in with other people and having conversations. So communication becomes key in order for us and honesty becomes key in order for us to just open up our understanding.
0: Thank you. I'm so excited to go a bit deeper into this now and to, to look at, I guess, the more formal and research-based um, information that is about that supporting the work you do in resilience. Um, just before we do, I probably, well I, well, I do want to acknowledge that this conversation might challenge some of our listeners and. Um, in the written introduction to this podcast, we're gonna include some numbers that you can call if in listening to this, you feel like you need extra support. But just on that, Maria, what are some of the, the warnings, so to speak, um, for our listeners so that they um, they can be prepared for the conversation we're about to step into?
1: Thanks, Jeremy, That's that's really important. Look, when we begin to talk about resilience, we can't talk about resilience, well, you can, but if if we're going to talk about it deeply, to talk about resilience, well, we also need to be talking about mental ill health. And when we talk about mental ill health like depression and anxiety and bipolar and, you know, affective mood disorder and, you know, obsessive compulsive disorder and eating disorders, we need to be very mindful that there are people um, who may be listening to this podcast who may fall into those categories and so what, what we ask is that if you are listening and if you are hearing things that may trigger you or that may cause discomfort or that may cause you to have a sense of overwhelm or, or have just feel a bit dissociated or maybe even feel a little bit annoyed or angry, know that it's a very normal response and it's a very common response. To hearing about emotional and psychological states that um, that may not be as functional as as we'd like. So for those people who are listening, we do hope that you continue right through because there will be a lot of information today. But please hold yourselves in care. You know, hand on your heart, hand on your tummy. Um, be present. Be kind to yourself, and know that with any information that causes discomfort, there is also information that can offer you possibilities. And so holding yourself in care really means to be thinking about how you're feeling. If you need to switch off and go and get a, a drink of water, cup of tea, go to the toilet, and then come back and maybe you don't need, maybe you won't listen to the podcast all in one hit, but you you, you might listen to it in bits. And those bits are great. Uh, take the time that you need to go and ground yourself. Go and you know sit next to your partner. Go and go and walk with a dog for a bit. You know go outside and you know check check whatever it is that you know you're checking the cabbage. You know the the you know walk with the sheep. Whatever it is that you're doing, and then come back. So, um, but if you are feeling quite overwhelmed, then there will be phone numbers that you can call them. Please do reach out and do call and do speak to somebody because those services are there and they are there for you.
0: Perfect. Maria, thank you. So then launching in and just to create a context for this conversation, I want to ask how big is this as a problem in community? You shared some pretty alarming stats with us um, that I might ask you to speak to again. How big an issue is this for us?
1: Look, Jeremy. the the issue is a significant one, and I don't like to hold a position of being an alarmist because I don't think that that's helpful to anybody. But if we just very quickly have a look at what our statistics are telling us, um, is that from the two thousand and nineteen Productivity Commission? So if we go back to prior um, COVID, which I think is important, one in one in three people a day. Um, uh, uh, sorry, uh, uh, three people a day die in uh, die by road trauma. Yeah, we lose three people in Australia. Three people, three people a day to road trauma. We lose eight people a day to suicide.
0: Mm.
1: Now those statistics are significant, and that was pre COVID. What one in four people in 2019 were living with a mental ill a mental illness, and you know suffering mental ill health. And those rates are very high. When we have a look at post-COVID, the rates of people who are living with symptoms that warrant uh, a diagnosis is two in five. And with all of the information that we have, Jeremy, and with all of the on-site platforms that we can go to, with all of the help that's out there, we really need to be asking the question, why are we not getting better? Why are things getting worse? Um, and they're not worse all the time, but what we've what we've seen and what certainly we've learned over the last couple of years, and you know, this there's been some fantastic research that's come out of the World Health Organization and that's come out of you know, some of our leading educational um, institutions around the world, is that um we need to be really careful about how we use our attention what are we paying attention to where where you know how much time do we spend listening to particular information that may catastrophize or exasperate or that may um magnify everything that's going wrong now that's not to say that Things aren't going wrong. Of course, they are, because life is like that. You know, there are things that go right, things that go wrong, and things that just go. Um, but we have a lot to learn in terms of how we use our capacity to attend to information, and and our attention is a really lovely definition is just simply where we choose to focus on at any one point in time. And and even though that definition sounds so simple. When you think about if you were to track your attention during the day and what it is that you are paying attention to, you start to realise very quickly that you have a pattern. You have a pattern, I have a pattern of things that we focus on. Where do we choose to focus our attention at any one point in time? And what's really interesting about this, um, Jeremy, is that, again, when I was walking along the river with my dog, Tonka, who's a Samoid, love him to death. Um, and as he's running and running along and barking, and I've got you in my ears, and you said that there is a part of the brain called the reticular activating system. And of course, you know, you're a farmer, and I'm a psychologist, and I'm walking along and you've said the word reticular activating system, and I've stopped, and I've gone, and I've looked around, and I've gone, he said, particular activating system and the dogs run ahead of me and I've stopped and I've looked around. Of course, there's no one around, but I needed to share it with someone because I've gone, He's, you've actually focused on a part of the brain that is a very old part of the brain and it sits in our brain stem and it's sort of the width of a pencil. It's sort of long, you know, and it sort of sits and connects our brain stem and then it links to um the middle part of our brain, which is called the thalamus. Now, the, the reticular activating system is a really interesting, you know, it sort of helps regulate sleep and, and focus and awareness. But the way that I like to talk about the reticular activating system is that it's a little bit like an aperture of a camera. So when when the aperture of a camera is wide open. So you imagine that the aperture of a camera it closes and then it opens and then you know have you got the image where we've got you've got those flaps that all sort of interlink. Yep. So yep. when they close 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 that's when you can focus and you go right I'm focusing on just one task and your aperture closes. And so your reticular activating system is is giving you information that's coming in just via that little narrow aperture. Now, when there are lots of things happening in our environment, our reticular activating system, and this is just a metaphor, yeah, Mm -hmm. opens up, yeah, the aperture opens up, and suddenly you've got all of this information coming in. Now, when we are in states of anxiety, our aperture is open. Everything comes flooding in. And so what that does is that it overwhelms us. And what we haven't done is that we actually haven't trained our aperture to close or narrow or open. We haven't we haven't trained it to be flexible, and so it becomes rigid. It's either open or it's almost closed shut. And closing shut is when I've got nothing coming in because I'm lying in bed. I've got my bed. I've got my covers over me. I've got. I've, I don't want to. You know. I don't want to listen to anything. And I'm retreating but what's really interesting is that the reticular activating system is linked to the thalamus and the thalamus again is part of the middle part of the brain and you know all of this we do training in in our resilience first day but we'll talk about that later on but is linked to our middle and the and the thalamus is like a router it it takes all of the information from the reticular activating system and and um, additional information that uh, comes in from our internal state, um, so all of our senses, you know, what, what's coming in from all of our senses, and the two of them work really well. But the, the the thalamus then holds it all, and it just and it routes it because then it's got to give it back out. Yes, yeah? so it sort of turns to the reticular activating system and says, okay, give me what you've got. I'm going to hold it for a minute. I'm going to see what else is coming in, and now depending on the information that I've got, I then need to give it to either my the 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 um, what we call our task positive. So our executive systems, which are our cortex, that sit on you know the squiggly bit of the brain that sit on the outside. So our prefrontal, our you know uh, parietal, you know occiputus at the back. So so there's a whole lot of systems uh, areas that are networked to produce higher order thinking. Now those networks can't work their best if you've got an aperture that's constantly open. Where you've got all this information that comes flooding in, it floods the thalamus, and the thalamus just goes, "Oh well, now we've got a panic." So rather than doing something with that information, because you need to be calm to do that, your your middle brain, this limbic area, goes into a panic and it hits the amygdala. Now I want to talk about the amygdala for a little bit because the amygdala has been notoriously known for a long time to be the threat centre of the brain. And certainly there's a part of... So the, the amygdala is a tiny organelle, but it, it has sections in it. You know, think about when you are, you know, you've just, I don't know, you've just, you know, killed killed a, a, a livestock and you've hung it and you've gone... Now you need to cut it up into bits because I remember my dad doing this with pork, Yeah. We're Italian, we're a big pork family. And so he would hang it up. Um, and, and you would you, there would be nothing that you would ever leave from that pork. You would eat everything, every everything, yeah. But I remember him because he was very good, he would start to carve it and you'd carve it in bits, and there was that bit, and there was this bit, and there was this bit, and there was, you know, and he'd you do bits. The amygdala is the same, it's in bits. There's a bit of the amygdala that is really sensitive to threat and is really sensitive to adversity and so that goes into an alarm state and it does that very quickly when the thalamus is loaded with all of this information that feels so overwhelming and the and then that part of the amygdala just takes over the rest of the rest of its parts and it dominates but the amygdala um, over the last few years, we've seen some really amazing research where we now know that the amygdala is really important in processing all information or all emotion, not just not just the harsh ones. And so our job is to train this amygdala to shine rather than shout. When our amygdala is shouting at us, we become reactive, we go into this fight or flight state, But when our amygdala shines for us rather than shouts at us, so this idea of our amygdala shining rather than shouting is is quite prominent at the moment. So if it shines for us, what it does is that it just processes all of the initial emotion that comes in and it's able to hold it better because it's also connected to another part called the hippocampus but that's probably a conversation for another time because I wish I had diagrams to show you. But, but the point is this, the point is that our brain is so complex and because of its complexity. And, you know, Jeremy, the reality is we actually, we don't even know half of it yet. You know, there are parts of the brain that work that we actually don't know how and why, you know, we, we, we've got really good guesses at the moment, but One way of thinking about the brain is how well does it connect to all of its areas? Because when there is a disconnect, then we find that we are less resilient. But where the brain is really well connected to all of its parts, then you've got really, really big connection. So the idea about training this reticular activating system goes back to attention. So when we're able to train our Aperture to open and close, and that it's becoming more adaptive to what our needs are, and also what the environment is telling us. So when we've got that flexibility, you know, when you can open the open the shutter, close the shutter, open it, close it a little bit more, a little bit more. Little bit more. When we can do that flexibly, and and we can train in that, that's where we've we've got again high level of resilience. Now that's only one area, but that's training our attention. So you are absolutely on the money.
0: I love um, how much we are learning about how our mind works, and now there's so much well-researched science and neuroscience supporting a lot of the personal development and self-improvement principles that that we teach as coaches. Um, I'd love to explore this further with you, and let's go deeper into how the mind works. When I'm stressed and under pressure and my amygdala fires and I'm in fight or flight, I understand that that's the amygdala trying to keep me safe. Um, But would you mind speaking about how we behave in that moment and how that might not serve us necessarily if we're not actually in a, life or death situation, and then even how to self-regulate and manage that fight or flight condition?
1: Yeah, it's a really big question. So let's break it up a little bit. So when the amygdala is firing and it's shouting at us, that shout becomes really loud. So in our head, because it's so loud, we believe what we think. And so under under a, um, under a threat, under adversity, under challenge, because the amygdala shouts, this is a, you know, just a metaphor that we use because there's a whole lot of other stuff that's happening.
0: It's because of
1: the shouting, it actually draws itself a lot of attention, the amygdala. And what it does is that it draws a lot of the resources from the brain. So rather than the resources going to all of our great thinking areas, It draws it away and it keeps it all for itself because it's got a big job to do because it's shouting, yeah? So when it shouts, it shouts things like, you're an idiot, you're stupid, don't do that, Um, don't trust them, that's not okay. So the amygdala likes small, short statements. The smaller the statements, the more the amygdala is shouting. So the amygdala will shout, idiot. Other colourful language, yeah? Does that make sense? So the shorter your statement, the more your amygdala is shouting. So that's actually a bit of a, that's a a flag for us. So if we're thinking in really, really short two or three-word statements and they are loud, know that we are not in a good thinking space. And what we would normally see, are that we become reactive. Now, we become reactive because the amygdala is shouting, but when the amygdala shouts, it actually releases a whole lot of hormone into our system, into our endocrine system. And adrenaline is one of them. And there are a whole lot of others. But if we just talk about adrenaline at the moment, adrenaline is a really powerful hormone and Its job is to mobilize. It's a mobilizer. So when we are in a state where the amygdala is shouting at us and then it dumps a whole lot of adrenaline into our system just through the HPA axis, what happens is that we've got all of this body energy, this muscular energy, so we're more likely to throw things. We're more likely to use really aggressive language, not because we're bad people, but because we have this really strong mobilisation effect to act out because we've got all this energy. And so we're most likely to slam the door. We're most likely to get into the car and speed off. We're most likely to um, behave in ways that are really reactive and and engage in heightened um, energetic behaviours, which we know to be aggression. And after that subsides, we walk away feeling so terrible about ourselves, feeling so shamed or guilty that we've behaved in ways that we actually didn't want, or in ways that don't align with our values. And that, and and then we we sort of d- develop this belief system that that's who we are. Well, then no, that's not right. It's just that we haven't trained this very old part of the brain, this system, this you know primitive part of the brain we haven't trained it and we haven't learnt the skills and so we are more likely to lean into that
0: so how often and how for what duration can people in a farming or even an intense professional environment and I think about surgeons and architects and engineers and others how much time in a a day might people spend in that state
1: Oh, you know, Jeremy, that's a really big question because if the more we keep to ourselves and the more we close ourselves off in our head and just listen to what's going on in here, the more we believe what we think. And this, this sort of phenomenon of believing what we're thinking is just part of the human condition. Because I hear myself speak, and I hear myself think, that's incredibly intimate. There are, I keep saying to people, there are two things that are so intimate to us in our lives. The first one is our thinking, and the second one are our emotions. Nothing will be ever more intimate to us than how we feel in our bodies and how we think in our head. And because we are so aligned, then we believe what we think. And I and I do say to people, You know, we need to understand that this is a really powerful state because people will die for an idea. You know, if we develop belief systems where we believe that moving toward a point of death is in some way optimizing, and if we truly believe that, then we will act that out. And so, this idea that our thinking creates emotions and our emotions become so loud within us that we act them out. So the more we stay in our head and, you know, you ask how long can we stay in there for, we can be in there for days, weeks, where we're just looping and looping and looping and giving ourselves and we build a narrative. Like So it's like what you were saying in the podcast. You know, you spent years as a kid going through primary school and then secondary school and then uni and then, you know, you've got, you know, the, the great job in Sydney and you go and you spent years of this giving yourself this narrative this story so if we're talking about really heightened levels or spiking levels of anxiety or spiking levels of aggression we could be in there for minutes and hours but if we then bring that down a little bit but continue to tell ourselves the same story we we act that out in our lives we take less risks we make less less decisions that are helpful Um, so. The Are You Okay Day that you spoke about in your podcast, the reason why that has to be so pivotal in our lives is because the minute that you go to someone and you go, hey, what's going on for you, you become a circuit breaker to somebody's spinning head. And the minute that you ask how are you and that we allow those conversations to happen, the minute we start to say things out loud and the second that I say things out loud, I actually hear what I think. Mm. And when you hear it externally, it sounds very, very different to when you hear it internally. And so the idea of getting people to talk is absolutely fundamental. It is fundamental in the way that we can support each other, but also give feedback. You know, one of the things you were talking about was learning about your cognitive distortions. And I love that. I think cognitive distortions should be placed in cow's milk for all those dairy farmers, and it should be sold on the shelf as full cream milk with cognitive flexibility.
0: <laughs> when
1: you When you teach cognitive distortions, what you're doing, and this is so foundational, what you are doing is that you are giving people a way of being able to detect whether their thinking is helpful or unhelpful. That's 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 it. Yep. If I've got unhelpful thinking, don't follow it. But if I've got helpful thinking, I can follow it. But how do you how do you know what's helpful and what's unhelpful if you're so connected to what you think? And so cognitive distortions actually give you the skill to be able to delineate, differentiate between what's helpful and what's not helpful. And there are many. There are many cognitive distortions. And, you know, people use different names for different cognitive distortions. Mm. But they are, I think, so fundamental that we should be teaching this, and we do, by the way, but we should be teaching this in primary school. We should be teaching it as a as a foundational skill because if you've got that really early on, that becomes an inoculation of early onset depression, early onset anxiety.
0: Yeah, and to your point, I think we need to do another podcast on <laughs> those cognitive distortions. And you know, to, oh, answer, to answer my own yeah. question, perhaps um, I cannot explain how completely debilitating being in that mindset was for those first 24 years of my life. And I came out of a wonderfully fortunate and privileged family um, and lifestyle, yet that was what I picked up and that was my psychology. So, you know, I I completely get how the loop can be damaging. Um, And I also reflect on how lucky I am to learn that at such a young age and how much it has served me since. I guess with this When the amygdala fires, and what you've talked about is we kind of can go into fight or flight, and that takes up a lot of our mental resources so that it shuts down the parts of our brain like the prefrontal cortex that um, supports um, higher-order thinking, how do we self... What can we do to self-regulate, to quieten the amygdala and then over time, even train the amygdala so that very few situations require a fight or flight response. Yet that's, as you say, that's that's what plays out. That's, what, that's that old mind reality. How do we manage our amygdala and then give ourselves the ability to re-engage that higher order thinking? I think it's the prefrontal cortex so yeah. that um, we can come back into a place of, critical thinking, creative thinking, problem solving um, without the intensity that the amygdala can bring.
1: Okay. So I want to give you an image. You know that image that Michelangelo painted in the Sistine Chapel where man has his finger out and then, then, you know, God's got his finger out and they're just about touching? I, I want you to go to that image because the idea is that god's image is you know his finger is our prefrontal cortex that's that's where the higher order thinking is yeah that's that's where that's where the the big the big shine is yeah our amygdala is us when we build resilience what we are doing is that we are building skills and strategies to build up that prefrontal cortex. Um, so, you know, we learn things like how to create really good goals for ourselves, how to develop a very clear vision. Because when we do that, then we're moving forward. And I'll come back to that definition in a moment, the definition of resilience, because I'm, I'm you actually asked me before and I didn't answer it, but we'll get to that. So the idea is that the The more time we spend building the fitness of the cortex, so building that prefrontal cortex. So I I want you to think when when you are spending time building that prefrontal cortex, so problem solving, uh, planning, um, uh, being able to be really resourceful, having a broader thinking, being more flexible with your thinking. When you start to build that, that's that's the connection, and what that does is that the stronger that is, the more it can quieten the amygdala because it it then becomes louder than the amygdala shout. And so then what what the, the idea is to actually have them touching, not have the gap but have them touching because when they touch, your cortex is able to just quieten that down. It's able to hold it and keep it calm. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it really does. I was reflecting on one of the things I've always done with my kids is when they fall off the motorbike and their knees covered in blood or whatever, I'd make a point of not panicking and I ask them, is this major, medium, or minor? And um I've framed up that if your arm's broken, that's a medium. Um and so
1: Well, what's major?
0: I can't I can't tell you how often I've said, guys, major, medium or minor. They've said minor. And then I've just seen their whole physiology change. They might have fallen out of a tree or whatever. Um, I remember once my son threw a pitchfork. He was practising his javelin and it got one of my other sons in the eye. Um, And again, I sort of said to them both major, medium or minor. And um, they both said medium. I was like, right, well, let's just work through this that way. And they both really settled down. So. Is there a question like that that we can ask ourselves when we're feeling real stress and overwhelm that helps us keep perspective in that moment? Which, which in and of itself might quieten the amygdala and allow the prefrontal cortex so, to come into its
1: own. Yeah, there are a series of questions. I have to say, I actually really like yours. Um, I'm going to borrow that if that's okay. <laughs> I think that's fantastic. Is this is this mild, medium, or major? What's a major for you? Because oh. A pitchfork is sort of a, a bit major for me. What's major for you?
0: Oh, major for me would be near death. One of my kids has, um, looks like he's, he's broken his neck or um, yeah. severely severed a leg or something. Like I think, you know, a broken yeah. arm for me is is a medium, isn't it? But I think so often when the amygdala fires, we major the minus. And we do, absolutely I think, do. I think... It's one thing. Ha- it's one thing to have your dad say, you know, is that a medium or a minor, but I think we need to be able to ask questions like that of ourselves yes. when we're in the heat of battle, so that we keep perspective and keep a sense of reality, so that we self-manage the amygdala.
1: Yeah. So, so what we're now talking about is composure. So we ask questions like, "Is this helpful? Um, does this thinking?" allow me to um, plan flexibly? Does my thinking allow me to be adaptive? Um, does this thinking allow me to feel better? So we've got to check our thinking. Yeah, we've got to listen. What, what is it that I'm actually saying? And then, and then inquire about that. So I call it cognitive quality control. Nice. It's a little bit like, you know, you're standing at, at a conveyor belt and every box that's coming past, you're checking it, yeah? You're checking the corners. You're checking whether it's, you know, because what you want at the end is is the high-quality product. So I've got to do my job, and my job is to inquire and, and, and have some quality control over that thinking. So if you put a thought on a conveyor belt and you look at that thought and you say it out loud and you go, well, and then you inquire. And that's the inquiry process. And you go, well, is this thought helpful? Does it allow me to be productive? Does it allow me to be adaptive? Does this thought, does this thought, allow me to um, respond flexibly? Does does this thought allow me to feel better about myself? Does this sort of allow me to now think about how to move forward? And and a great question that I love to ask people is. What would you say if a friend was thinking the same way as you? What would you say to them? How would you respond to a friend who is thinking like this? Because when you do that, you actually, what what happens is we're asked to not reflect on ourselves, but we're asked to reflect on what someone else would, would be You know, how would we respond to them if they were thinking like that? And you will immediately get a completely different answer. You know, if I if I walked around saying to myself, Oh, I'm an idiot, I'm an idiot, I'm an idiot. And then someone said to me, Well, how would you respond if your friend was saying that to you? And I go, Well, if I had a good friend that was going around saying I'm an idiot, I'd be saying, No, you're not an idiot. You've actually got really good resources. In fact, there are so many good things about you that make you incredible. We would never talk to other people the way that we talk to ourselves with such disdain, with such resentment, with such um, self-flagellation, and yet we allow it because we don't go in and check our thinking. So asking some of those questions just becomes really important.
0: That's a great comment. Um, One of my mentors, Marshall Thurbert, shared this article with me about mastery. And if we want to be in pursuit of mastery in anything, um, one of the first things we have to do is have deep compassion for ourselves. Isn't it interesting that I can't be a professional golfer, I can't be a professional farmer, I can't pursue excellence in anything until I'm kind to myself. Um, yet we are our own hardest critic. So often, aren't we? And to your yeah. point, we wouldn't we wouldn't ever say some of the things we say to ourselves about ourselves. We wouldn't we wouldn't um, make those assertions towards even our worst enemy, let alone friends. Yeah.
1: Correct. Yeah. yeah. So
0: compassion for self. So yeah. what else do we need to know um, at a high level about how the mind works um, against or then in support of us being more resilient?
1: Yeah. So one of one of the areas um, that we talk about in resilience is what we call composure. And composure is um our capacity to be able to regulate our bodies and our minds when they both become very loud you know when we move into states of really high distress that hyper arousal where our heart's beating our chest is tight our throat's tight our mouth goes really dry we're chewing our jaw um you know our our, our legs feel like they're jelly or that we want to run or or that sometimes we we can feel really confused um that when when we are experiencing those symptoms, it's really important to find ways to calm that noise and to soften that noise so that our prefrontal cortex can actually begin to think. Like, you know, it's that amygdala shout. So things like stopping and pausing, go go and grab a water, go and grab a cup of tea, go for a walk. Movement seems to be picking up a a huge amount of interest in research lately. Um, they're, They're calling it forward ambulation. And forward ambulation is this idea that we become far more responsive to our environment if we have some forward moving, and it's got to do with eye movement. We can go into it deeply, but let's just leave it like that at the moment. But if you go for a walk, a brisk walk, and you are holding yourself in care, you're being compassionate with yourself. you just say, look, I just need a break. Let me just, I'm going to take a break. I'm going to go for a walk. I need some fresh air. Let me just go out. And and that movement really allows you to use up that adrenaline that's in the body, but it's also offers you opportunity to go to calm and just bring yourself down. There are breathing techniques that, that we can also engage in. And there are a number of breathing techniques that people talk about. You know, there's the box breathing, there's the plus two breathing. There's So there are a whole lot of um, strategies and there are breathing breath coaches out there that will talk about particular strategies. The idea is always just find it, find your breath. Find it. You know, you go out and you you can say, "I'm just going to find my breath," and you find your breath where you move into this state where you can actually feel the gentle inhale coming through your nost- nostrils, and then this this release, and your shoulders are dropping. Find. I keep saying to people, just find your breath. Find it. And sometimes what can what can be really helpful is that is that um, forced exhale where you. F- and you force, 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 and you force all the air out, and then suddenly you let go, and you do this natural, and you go, "Well, there it is. That's the breath. There, there it is." It's it's really interesting because of all, there's also been some interesting research about this concept called the physiological sigh, and the physiological sigh um, tends to have a reset um effect on the vagus nerve and the vagus nerve is this really important nerve that links the base of your brain to right down the yeah right down your spinal cord and it belongs to the parasympathetic nervous system i wish i had a white well i've got a whiteboard, book but you won't be able to see if i draw it um But the physiological sigh is really interesting. What it does is that it rebalances the amount of carbon dioxide to the amount of oxygen that's in your system. Because when we're panicking, we're actually taking in far too much oxygen and the body doesn't like heightened levels of oxygen. There needs to be a balance between oxygen and carbon dioxide because what we're doing is you know, we're, we're 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 doing this panic, so we're just gasping and we're just bringing in more oxygen, and the brain then goes into a panic and goes, "No, not there's too much oxygen." So the physiological side is really interesting. It's two quick succession breath intake. The second one sort of needs to be a bit longer than the first. There's a hold, and then there's just a, and when you when you go out. It's through pursed lips and you drop your shoulders at the same time. So it sort of looks like this. So it's a sign. It's actually really powerful. You actually only need, well, look, the research, if you listen to sort of Dr. Andrew Huberman, who's one of my muses at the moment, he's. Um, I'm just obsessed with his work. He's a neuroscientist in the States and uh, and andrew huberman has done a huge amount of work around the physiological side and i would encourage you to go and find it and have a look or i'm happy to send you the link um but he explains it beautifully and i can tell you it is very very powerful so it's just a reset and in fact reset is one of my favorite words at the moment we don't fix mental illness we need to move away from that we don't fix depression we don't fix anxiety that's that's not how the human body works. You know, we're organic. We're not, me- we're not mechanically um, con- contrived or built. So we will always experience moments of being flat or moments of being heightened, um, and that's really important.
0: I think it's so true. Um, and to your point right at the outset, we're going to have situations thrown at us in life that challenge us, and resilience is how we adapt and respond. Um, but we don't. We need to be careful with these labels, but also, um, we've got to be okay living with the conditions and and being able to take them on and self-regulate and self-manage. And so, I love you sharing with us how to find calmness, how to find composure. Um, and using that that breath work as an example um, to self-regulate so that we can, you know, come back to a situation and work through it constructively.
1: But, you Um, know, Jeremy, can I just say what's even more important than self-regulation is co-regulation?
0: So what's the difference?
1: Oh. (laughs) (laughs) The difference is that... When I find somebody who can hold my space and just be with me, neurologically, you very, very quickly feel held, feel safe, feel secure, and you can go to a much more balanced state far more quickly. The idea of co regulation is that when I'm resilient, and you come to me and you've been dysregulated for some reason or you've bit heightened or something, if I can remain really anchored and remain um, very present for you, neurologically, there's a neurological bounce that happens. And because I can remain so stable for you, you're going to feel that neurologically, and you are more likely to go back to balance. There is nothing more powerful than a hug. There is nothing more powerful than a shoulder rub. There is nothing more powerful than holding someone's hand and going, I'm here. I'm not going anywhere until you tell me you're, you're just better. There is nothing more powerful than having someone standing in front of you and not mirror your distress but hold you in care, just give you that space, hold that space for you. And so co-regulation, we're beginning to see our research talk about that neurological states can mimic each other very, very quickly. And so when you have someone who's calm and regulated and is really well anchored and that is that person for you, you've got someone to go to. And so now what we're talking about, Jeremy, are communities of care. When we have, when we train people in resilience and we train a number of people, suddenly we've got this massive paradigm shift because when you're okay and I'm okay and she's okay and he's okay and we know how to be okay because we're not always going to be okay. But when you've got the resources there, and you move into that space. And I i might ring you and I might ring you and I'm going, Jeremy, today I've had a really crap day and I've got to tell you what's happened. And I know you are my co-regulator. And you say to me, Maria, I'm listening. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pop open a beer. I'm going to go sit on my balcony. I'm going to put my legs up. But I've got you on the phone. I'm listening. Talk to me. I'm here for you. That, that is really powerful co-regulation. You, you, you've had a hard day out. You go back to your wife at the end of the day and she's slamming plates and she's throwing pots and, you know, the kids are, and things haven't gone right. She's burnt the butter. She's, yeah, and you've walked in, you've had a hard day too, but you can see she's not regulated and you just walk up to her and you say to her, I'm really happy to be home and I'm happy to be here. Tell me what I can do for you. Do we need five minutes? I'm not going anywhere. That in itself is very, very powerful Mm. because the butter is minor, but when you're distressed, the butter is major. We turn the minor into a major, exactly like what you've said. But when you've got someone to co-regulate with, suddenly you don't feel so abandoned, but you feel so connected. And it's that connectedness, that creates co-regulation. Very, very powerful.
0: I think that really speaks to the really important leadership role that we each play in family, in family business and in community. Um, I think it's really talked about that concept of holding space for someone else. Um, but if you can be calm or if I can be calm and composed and be there for people in my team in my family and community it's such an important leadership role i'm so lucky to have a, a spiritual guide and my coach in dig who i spend about an hour and a half or two hours with him every week and he just holds space for me to explore um and reflect and and having that is priceless and so worthwhile just for our listeners to check in on that who do you have holding space for you um so yeah. and you can check in and and explore some of the things that we're talking
1: about. Yeah. And and the other question, Jeremy, is who do you hold space for? So yeah. not only who, who holds your space, yeah, who who co-regulates you, who who is the person that you help to co-regulate? Mm. Because we we know what that feels like when we are being co-regulated, when we're being held, when we're being connected, when you know, when but then take that. And then go, now, who who am I going to hold space for? Who needs my co-regulation? And can you see how we pass, we're just passing it forward? Whatever whatever we're getting here, we're not keeping it to ourselves. We're going, now, how can I do this for someone else? Yeah. And we create communities of care, and that's really important. But what's even more important here, so let's now go to the definition really quickly, because we've spent, you know, all this time... Um, Sort of hovering around it. So the definition that we use um, in in our neuroscience model is um we we define resilience as um, advancing despite adversity. Three words, but very, very powerful. and that those words are inviting a very broad perspective. When I was listening to your podcast, you were talking about epicormia. And epicormia is, <clears throat> is the, the process that occurs when there is a bushfire and trees are burned to a crisp. Yeah. Everything's just black. And then you wait a couple of months and then and that that those burnt sort of shells around the tree, they fall off. And you've got new sprouts forming. That's epicormia. Now, resilience is not not being in the fire, yeah? Resilience is not that you avoid the fire. Resilience is about knowing how hard it is to be burnt and and being very present in knowing what that experience is like. See, resilience is not something that feels good. I think we need to be really clear with people. When you are being resilient, when you are in a when you are in a, a an, an active immediate state of being resilient, it's not going to feel nice. What feels nice is that you've been able to move through it and look back and go, gee, I was resilient then. But then didn't feel good. So it's this idea that you do experience the distress, you do experience the burn, you do experience resilient people don't avoid that. They, they experience the adversity but you advance despite of it and it means this idea again to forward ambulation is that you've got to continue to move forward because if you move back, it's depression and if you jump forward, then that's anxiety because then you expect the worst. So advancing despite adversity means that you are impacted by the adversity, you are impacted by the challenge, but you don't identify with it as you move forward. You start to peel it off and go, right, now what are the resources? Who am I underneath all of this and how now do I come through this? And there are ways of doing that.
0: I love that. Incredible. Thank you. And we don't always have to feel good um, in that process. I I love that. So, Maria, would you mind speaking to the program that you've created, Resilience First Aid? I'm keen that our listeners understand that. And absolutely, I want to share a link to that so that if people want to explore that as an opportunity for them that they have the ability to. Can you just speak to your program?
1: Yeah, so um I, I it's I've helped co-design it. So um the um the organization behind um resilience first aid is driven, and they're in Sydney. And uh, uh Yuri Russo is the director of that. And I've been so fortunate to be asked to come in and, and help co-design the program. And The program is based on the PR6 and the PR6 is a resilience model and it's based on neuroscience. So the PR6 stands for Predictive Resilience Factor 6 and 6 means that there are six domains to resilience. And the PR6 talks about these six domains which we teach in Resilience First Aid, so it's a two-day certification course, And what we do is that we spend two entire days going through each of those six domains in detail with the neuroscience behind it, and there's lots of neuroscience. But as you know, Jeremy, the neuroscience behind it is important because it just gives us a framework to work with. It doesn't mean that we're we're teaching an exact science. But what we're doing is that we're giving people enough information so that they can understand what's happening inside and they can begin to visualise what needs to happen. You know, it's that that connection. So um, we explore the six domains and the six domains are vision. So we talk about creating goals. We talk about goal planning. We talk about our purpose, our values, all the things that you spoke about in your podcast so beautifully Um, and that we spend time looking at why that is and just just for your interest the um the area when when we when we spend time focusing on vision and we and we really give that our attention what we're doing is that we are increasing the strength of the reticular activating system so each section each of the domains have particular neural areas that activate when you are when you are employing this particular domain. And the idea is that if you are employing all of the six domains, then what you're doing is that you are creating really strong mental fitness because you are activating a whole lot of areas neurologically in the brain so that it all becomes switched on. So you've got a really strong cortex to quieten the amygdala. Composure is about regulation. It's about emotional awareness. Now, this is a very, very big domain because... This is where we teach how to calm, how to manage our stress levels. Um, here is where we are taught how to uh, what, what the breathing does, uh, what happens in the lungs, um, how to self-regulate and why that's important for our thinking brain. The next one is reasoning, and reasoning you'll, you will particularly like because reasoning... Uh, talks about the thinking traps, which is the cognitive distortions, and it talks about what we can do instead. How do we inquire? Um, The the purpose of being able to identify our resources and how resourceful we can be and how well we can adapt. So talking about coping. Then there's health. This is a very interesting domain because most resilient measures really don't look at health. But if we're not looking after the health of our bodies and the health of our brains, then there's no point even talking about how resilient we can be because if we're not sleeping well and if we're not eating well and if we're not exercising, if we're not moving, then the rest of it doesn't really happen for us because, you know, we deteriorate our physical resources and we end up in a in a chair and, you know, and being immobile. So... Looking after our our sleep quality and our exercise habits um, are critical, so we focus on that. The next domain is tenacity, and tenacity is our ability to focus attention, to look at optimism, and the role that optimism that 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 hopeful thinking what that does for us, and how we have forward thinking and forward moving in our in our thinking, so that we are. Constantly building this level of tenacity where we uh, raise our level of motivation, where we continue to persevere and persist. And then the last domain, which I have to say is my favourite, which is collaboration. And collaboration is very, very much about co regulation, connecting. How do we connect with people? How do we reach out? How do we build social confidence? How do we build a social capital in our life so that? we are able to bring people on board, hold people's spaces, but also allow other people to hold our space when necessary. And when we put all of those domains together, we have um, advancing despite adversity. That's where we learn how to do that advancing and and how we learn to move through the adversity.
0: Thank you for sharing that. Um, And I love that there is a program dedicated to helping people work through those six key pillars if you like of being resilient and supporting i think once you've done that training you can also then be confident enough to support others to go on that journey as well so yeah that program on my right it's, it's it's as much for helping others in this space as it is helping,
1: helping oh absolutely so we teach you how to become a resilient responder so you become part of the responder community so you not only do you also happen to be learning about resilience yourself but resilience yourself but the idea is to learn the skills of resilience so that you can help other people develop theirs you become a resilience first aid responder so you go to people's aid hold their space and know what to say how to say it know where to direct their attention know what the functional features of resilience are um, and, you know, learning the neuroscience means that we align ourselves with this idea that it's biology before behaviour. We don't just focus on behaviour. We actually focus on the biology of what resilience and mental health looks like.
0: Perfect, Maria. Thank you. I have three more questions for you. And before I ask these, if it's okay, um, let's do another podcast on cognitive distortions. I think it would be incredible. Um, I'd love to allow our members our listeners to kind of reflect more fully on each of those key cognitive distortions if that's
1: okay I I would absolutely love to yeah so if it's
0: okay my last three questions I'll give them all to you and you feel free to answer them in any way you can so I'd love just to touch on the science of optimism and what research there is out there on the importance of optimism equally the importance and any research around the importance of gratitude um in helping people um maintain perspective and and live a resilient life and then my last question is just a final tip for our listeners on what you would have them do on this journey where do they start what do they do to explore this and that topic of resilience perhaps a little more nice. fully?
1: yep so the the, the science of optimism is enormous and the role that optimism plays in our mindset as well as our neurological landscape is that it offers what we call the positivity offset so when we are in spaces where we are not not coping where we have heightened negativity, where our attention is all on all the things that are going wrong. There is this concept that we call the offset. So what we what what research, sorry has found is that if you go in and try and just work with changing all the negatives and trying to turn them all into positives, Um, it's really ineffective because the reality is that there are some things in our lives, some ways of thinking that are negative that is really important, you know, things around checking for safety and things around, you know, what are the dangers. So you can't turn them all into. But if we hold those realistic negatives in place and then we introduce some positives, it becomes an offset so rather than our life being like this where we're where really focused on negatives and we're feeling really crap about ourselves all the time because when we think that, we feel that, and, and our positive life is down here, to offset and to bring that back to balance is that we start to engage in on purpose, by the way, we start to engage with strategies that allow this balance to come back up, that, that, that allow what we call the positivity offset, and what that does is that we engage in things like keeping a gratitude journal or that we come to the end of the day and we talk to our family about what went well during the day or that we, on purpose during the day, we notice things that happen and they're small things, yeah, small things that happen that you stop and pause and stay in that pause and you just go, that, that actually was really nice. So, you know, things like... um I might be parking the car at a supermarket. I open the door and I find a $2 coin on the on the ground. And rather than just going, oh, yeah, $2, this is great. You pick it up and you flick it in the car, you stop and you look at the $2, you pick it up and you go, this was meant for me and this is actually really nice. And now with this $2, I'm actually going to do something with it that aligns with my value. I'm going to do something with it that aligns with my priority. So. You don't just become flippant about good things that happen. You actually stay with it and you align with it and you go, This is good for me. This is nice. This is nice that this has happened. Why has it happened? I don't know. I just found it. Or that you might be lining up for a coffee and you've got someone behind you who's really grumpy because a line's too long. They want a coffee. And then what you do is you turn around and you just give a smile and you go, You know what? The line's long, but. I know that there's a good coffee ahead. We just take small things and we connect in positive ways. And what optimism does is that it begins to train that aperture, that we we start to allow that aperture to begin to focus on the things that are healthy and, and helpful for us rather than just constantly narrowing in and focusing on the things that are unhelpful. And so the science of optimism is so critical for holding hope, for being able to create realistic goals forward, to lift our level of motivation so that we're not starting from this zero ground all the time, but we, we're leveraged a lot a lot sooner. So that optimism plays a very, very crucial part in also. Helping, helping helping us to strengthen our prefrontal cortex. And the last part of your question, which I now have forgotten, was?
0: Well, you've touched on gratitude, and I think it does link in with optimism, doesn't it? Um, yeah, so just the importance of gratitude. Um, yeah,
1: well, I, I, it's critically important because what it does is that it allows us to be reflective of the good things that have happened in our lives, but also who's contributed to that. And it motivates us to want to replicate that and pay it forward. And, again, we fall back into, you know, creating these amazing, compassionate and wonderful communities of care. Sorry, sorry, I just want to leave you with a quote. Um, I I was so privileged a number of years ago um, to be working along, uh, to be doing some work alongside um, Professor Christopher Peterson and I spent about three, four days with him and, and um, you know, just looking at some of his research. And he was a huge man from uh, America and he had this, you know, he was huge. He was like this big Texan and he wore a Texan hat and he wasn't from Texas at all, but he just loved, loved the hats and, you know, and he was this, you know. Um, and he was huge. And yet when he spoke, he was a gentle giant. But I remember one of the things that he kept saying over and over again And I gift this forward to people that I work with. And his quote that he has left with me in my heart and in my mind. And I remember him saying to me, you know, Maria, out of all of the research that we have done over the years, what we keep finding and what we keep going back to is a simple statement of other people matter. And they do. They matter in our lives. Other people matter in our health. Other people matter in our vision, in the way that we compose ourselves. Other people matter when we are checking in with them and checking to see how we think. Other people matter in why um, we persist and persevere. So the people that we have around us, that we keep in our circle, they matter to us. And it is because we live in communities where we have belonging and we have identity with other people that our life becomes so purposeful so other people matter
0: i love that and what a perfect way to finish i find when i'm off my game and not on my a game if i reflect on where my focus is on i'm being very self-centered and self-focused and you know caught up in my own thoughts and what's not going okay for me but one of my self-corrections now is to turn my attention back to being in the service of others and when I do that, I find that everything changes in my psychology, and you know that's one of the key things that helps me self-correct. So I think it's a nice way to finish that. That you know, if we're not feeling okay, look how you can, you know, reach out and care for someone else, and maybe just the doing of that can help you on your on your path to resilience and and improvement. Now, Maria. And we've, we've scratched the surface on so many topics and I can certainly see why this is your lifetime's work. Um, I can't wait to connect with you again, but you know, on behalf of our community, I, I genuinely want to thank you for your time with our alumni members. We've had such amazing feedback and um, I know that the conversation we've just had has touched quite a few people in our community um, and I'm really grateful for that, but look forward to connecting again on all things cognitive distortions. Thank you so much for today. And thank you so much for giving us an insight into the neuroscience of how the mind works um, in and around this important topic of resilience.
1: Well, I look forward to sharing even more information, but I very much look forward to, we have a November date for Resilience First Aid. So if people would love, love to come to Melbourne, um, Windy Hill, if anyone barracks for Essendon, um, but but come 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 down and um and spend two days with us and receive a certification and you know and share some of this wonderful learning. But I really look forward to speaking with you again, Jeremy. Thank you so much,
0: Maria. Thank you so much for your time. Pleasure. And so there you have it, ladies and gents. Quite an incredible woman in Maria Roberto. Um, Thirty years clinically trained in psychology, but. To be able to explore this important topic of resilience um, and to explore and understand, or even start to understand the neuroscience and how the mind works, and um, how we can self-manage and self-regulate and support each other to um be more resilient. Um, yeah, I'm just really grateful to have that conversation with Maria and we'll look for ways to continue to have her involved in Profitable Pharma and. Um, We'll tap into her knowledge on a few other topics in the future. I hope that's been really useful for you. And as we said at the start, if this has triggered anything for you um, that you feel like you need more support on, in the written intro to this podcast, we'll share some numbers that you can call for more support. Thank you for listening once again um, and take care. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Profitable Farmer podcast by Farm Owners Academy. If you're new to this show, be sure to follow us. If you've been a long-time listener, let your friends know about us or come continue the conversation in the Profitable Farmer Facebook group. All the best as you grow your business and create your freedom farm. Until next time, keep being incredible.